0: We never thought it would happen nobody gets in or out of that town now is that clear the girl just died how do you intend to let the people know about all this we were asleep well, they dragged us right out of the house are we under martial law don't talk to me or anybody else unless you get a voice print check oh hell's broke loose in town nobody knows what's going on now look you just can't push us around this way we've got to get a nuclear weapon in the air above that town Oh. Hey, what the hell's going on, Sheriff? You know what I do, boy. Let's go. i taken me no place. Oh, oh, man. This is easy. They started something they can't stop. The crazy. There's a... Something that dements. Something that inflames. Something that brutalizes. It's madness unleashed by human error. The crazies. Can they tame it before time runs out? I'm a key man on the Christie team. A key man! I'm one of the developers of that goddamn thing! Now if you want me to get the job done, you get me the stuff I need and you get it the hell in here before the morning's over! A small town becomes a giant stockade. Evan City must be contained or leveled. We're all concerned with Evan City, Mr. Hawks. If we have to push the button, we just say the weapon went off? Get me the president. 3,614 people are trapped by an unknown enemy. Five are on the run. Can they escape the spreading fury of the crazies?
1: You can make it. I know it.
2: David! Stop it. David! Stop it. They're coming, David!
0: They, they're coming. We gotta get out of here. Jesus,
3: man. And I want a weapon search for the entire town. Watch
0: it, Bobby! This is exactly the kind of thing we're trying to prevent! A lethal terror snowballs into hell. In there! Madness runs are you, are you, are you
3: rampant. We'll dope it out. Sooner or later. <laughs> Sooner or later. Yeah, yeah.
0: The crazy.
3: Hey, everybody, it's Ben Reiser here with Scott Lucas. Uh, Welcome to another episode of 70 Movies We Saw in the 70s This is episode number 31 Which, uh, I don't know, seems impressive until I look at everyone else's podcast And I'm like, wait, how do these fuckers record like 200 episodes in a year?
1: I mean, you only got 39 movies left, I think that's pretty (laughs) good
3: Yeah, that is good You're almost halfway there But there's people to... Paraphrase Albert Brooks There's people yeah. who only podcast That's all they do You know what that's from? No It's from Modern Romance He's in bed with her and, he, and she's wearing something That she's about to go to work with And he's like There's people out there who only rape That's all they do <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yeah, you know In the 70s uh, Rape jokes They were, they were everywhere yeah. And uh, I feel
3: like we've lost that These days I saw something today which uh, rattled my faith in Albert Brooks, um, which is an an outtake from the James L. Brooks movie, I'll Say Anything, I'll Do Anything. I'll Do Anything. Which was a musical.
1: Is he singing
3: in it? Yeah. It was a musical. They cut all the songs out of it and released it, and it was still a bomb. Right. Something that I found out today that I never knew was that the songs were written do you know who wrote the songs for I'll Do Anything? I
1: gotta guess they were Randy Newman.
3: That's a great guess. Like, I, if you had said that, I would have been like, oh, yeah, I'm sure you're right. Are you ready? Are you sitting? You are sitting down. I'm <laughs> sitting know, down. I don't know what yeah. you're sitting I'm on, but.
1: Totally sitting down.
3: Yeah. Uh, Prince.
1: No way. Prince. And, and, and they thought it was a bad idea.
3: They thought the songs were bad. And watching this video, this outtake, where Albert Brooks is singing, I guess, the theme song to the movie because it's a song called I'll Do Anything. Right. I, I've i never seen anything worse. Wow. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, Albert Brooks cannot sing, and he's singing. Right. And the song is shitty. I mean, I said this to somebody who got mad, and I said, it's it's terrible. It's still better than anything off of the Batman soundtrack. And this person mm. took offense to that. I guess there are yeah. people who are into that. To those Prince Batman songs, but I was a total Prince fan at the time, and I couldn't even listen to the album once.
1: Well, to paraphrase Shaun of the Dead, throw it <laughs> when it comes to the the Prince Batman soundtrack. Yeah. Throw it, throw it. But it, that that movie, I like that movie uh, because that movie is all. Uh, I'll do anything is all about. Well, there's a huge chunk of it that's that's about. Uh, Test screenings, right? And so that movie has been shaped more by test screenings than most any movie I can think of. You know, this side of Fatal Attraction or something like that.
3: Yeah, it's almost like a. It almost feels like it's a stunt, like that. That the that, that the whole lore around that movie was built into it, and that's why right. I, that's why they did that. I, it's I a meta had a movie. similar. I have a similar theory about Madonna and that Abel Ferrara movie she made, Dangerous Game, which is the Abel Ferrara movie. Uh, that features Madonna sort of playing herself. She plays an actress. Right. And as usual, what's-his-face? Harvey Keitel is a stand-in for Abel Ferrara, and he's playing Uh. a Hollywood director who's directing Madonna and this dude James Russo. And it's all about what a terrible experience Madonna, the actress in this movie, is going through making this movie. And then after the movie was made, she disowned the movie and said it was a terrible experience making this movie. And I'm just like, bullshit. Bullshit. Nobody makes a movie about a terrible experience making a movie and then says that that movie, that the making of that movie was a terrible experience. It's just like a that's got to just be the built in PR around that movie. Right. But I've had right. people tell me that that's not true. So, anyway, so who knows what's going on without doing Do
1: Anything. Yeah, I've got to see that. Uh, I was going to say, well, I don't need to see it. But no, <laughs> I have to see that. I have to see that. Yeah. I, I don't hate that movie. Uh, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't hate anything that James L. Brooks does.
3: Really? I don't think really. I've seen that movie. I might have seen it once. Nick Nolte's in that movie, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
3: like he's the star of that movie, not Albert Brooks.
1: He's a star of the movie, but in in the movie within the movie, he ends up getting a, a bit part and and it's a supporting part. And he always says, "Best damn part in the movie." Um, it's not bad. It's it's got some things to recommend. And Albert Brooks is in it, playing a a, a, a sort of um, who's that really gross producer from the eighties.
3: But you, you want me to give you a list of the top 10 or
1: the one? Like, was well,
3: not Harvey Br- Weinstein,
1: no, no, like either Bruckheimer. Oh, yeah, or Joel Silver. Joel Silver. Silver. I think he's basically playing Joel Silver, yeah, uh, which is interesting because Steve Martin played Joel Silver in Grand Canyon
3: as well. So, wow, you know, whatever, damn. Uh, James L. Brooks. Yeah, I don't know what's so uh, what's what's supposed to be the best James L. Brooks movie? Broadcast News.
1: Broadcast News. Yeah,
3: yeah. I, I like. A, I don't love that movie. I think it's I fine.
1: Love it. I think it's great. I think uh, the scene, I saw it at the right time in my life.
3: I think that scene that everyone loves with Albert Brooks sweating mm-hmm. profusely. I just think it's it's over the top. Like I don't yeah. you know. And maybe because yeah. I was totally into Albert Brooks's own films, then I was like this. You know, you could dial this down maybe halfway and it would be twice as funny. That's just my personal taste. I, well, I,
1: the audience loved it. Yeah, uh, that was good, and and I like uh, as good as it gets a lot. I think the movie is terrific and one of the best, uh, one of the best trailers. Like, look up the trailer. It it's kind of like every once in a while, Music Box will play that trailer, and people are like, "What the fuck is this movie?" Um, and it's it's pretty great.
3: Is, um, is Spanglish James L. Brooks?
1: It is. That, that one was really hard to defend. Um,
3: I've only seen little bits of it, but every time I do see a little bit of it, I'm like, oh, this isn't so bad. Maybe that's yeah. the best way to see it.
1: I can't believe last week we forgot to bring up that Robert Townsend is in Cooley High. Uh, totally forgot about that. And my question about the, the gang members whether or not there was, it was, what was it? It was the Disciples versus the Crowns, whether or not there was an actual The Crowns. So I was watching uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. I saw that. And there's plenty of scenes in that movie with The Crowns. So, yes, I I was just unable to find, my Googling skills were were shit, as usual. Um, The main gang in that movie is The Crowns.
3: I'm interested in that, in this Robert Townsend thing, and that you thought, like, I can't believe we didn't mention that. Like, as if anyone even knows who Robert Townsend is anymore. Like, oh, there's a on, guy man. who's disappeared from the public consciousness, hasn't he?
1: I mean, you know, as far as I'm concerned, uh, Robert Townsend will always be known for Hollywood Shuffle, and that's pretty much it. But he was also, you know, he was in Streets of Fire, and he was in this. <laughs> and so. So it's important to bring that up.
3: Yeah. Well, okay. There's uh, uh, something weird happened that you discovered yesterday or the day before, which we both, apparently we both got these Facebook memory reminders. Like, hey, mm-hmm. here's something that you posted a year ago today. And it turned out on the same day, like a year ago, right? I think, we both posted Dawn of the Dead Related posts, and right, th- that's crazy because we weren't following each other at that point. Mm-hmm. I know I wasn't, and you might have been stalking me. I don't know, <laughs> <You> know my <laughs> reputation preceded me, right? But, um, uh, but I, I, I don't think it was apropos of anything when I first post. I just happened to, I don't know why I was watching Dawn of the Dead that day. Why I thought, oh, let me take a picture of the screen while I'm watching it because I, lo- I, I just love this line where he says something of being like Romeo's. So you were watching
1: it. You, I was we watching, were watching it. that on the same day. Right.
3: Yeah. Do you have any idea why you posted your tribute to George Romero on that? Day? I was
1: watching it because I was pretty much, I think it was four movies into this thing that, uh, that I was doing where I was going to watch all movies about sickness and contagions. And so. First we watched Contagion, and then we watched Crazies, and by that day a year ago, we were on the Dawn of the Dead. So I think I watched like 20, 25 movies that were all just, you know, world goes mad. I was really leaning into the apocalyptic nature of the times.
3: Yeah. I mean, I guess that must have been on my mind, too.
1: Yeah, I, I would imagine.
3: But what I remember was I was tr- I realized that my kids had never seen Dawn of the Dead, and I was really trying to get my daughter to watch it with me, and she wouldn't. She still mm-hmm. hasn't seen it, but um, <laughs> I think that I so I, go, I was like, "Fuck you! I'm going to watch it anyway." And right. I watched it.
1: Well, I was reading about the Argento cut. Uh, and how it's a bit shorter and has more gore in it. And I don't know if I've ever seen the Argento cut, and I kind of want to watch that one
3: now. I have I have a DVD somewhere, like a box set, that has, like, the American cut and the Argento cut and maybe some other thing?
1: Director's cut. There's, like, a two-and-a-half-hour version. There's a 126-minute version and, a, like, a two-hours-and-26-minute tw- version. Yeah, it's funny. Like, uh... Argento got Goblin to do that score for the movie, and Romero ended up not using almost any of it. Just wanted you know, He loves his stock music cues yeah, um, from the DeWolf Music Library. And so he was like, yeah, I don't really want this score. I'm going to throw most of it away.
3: I kind of dig the Romero library music cues. Yeah.
1: Yeah, some of it's a little screwy and odd. Uh, and this one has a lot of it in it.
3: Wait, we're talking about The Crazies today. Crazies, Which you know because you've already clicked on this thing and you already have seen the title of this podcast. But I always feel like, wait, we never even said what we're doing. Um, And uh, I was watching the remake of The Crazies today, Mm -hmm. uh, which uh, I I like quite a bit and is maybe one of the few remakes um, of, like, sacred texts for me, like The Crazies is, that I'm like, myths, it's all right. They did their own thing with it and they did it pretty well.
1: Mm, we, they did the Zack Snyder thing with it.
3: Okay, here we
1: go. I mean, come on. They both start with Johnny Cash music. Come on. Yeah, but By I the would way, say, fuck the I'm, crazies.
3: I would say the Crazies is a much better remake than Dawn of the Dead.
1: You're absolutely wrong. I mean, the the opening of the Crazies is pretty good. But then it's just all right. But go so on. You're
3: describing the Zack Snyder remake of Dawn of the Dead, which has maybe the best opening credit, a pre-credit sequence of any movie ever. I mean, it's the oh, it best.
1: absolutely does. It's terrific.
3: Ten and minutes it, it, of brilliance. But then there's nothing to recommend it after that.
1: And I don't know about that. What about the guy who plays Phil on Modern Family? He's in it. He's terrific in the movie. Terrific. I and it, it it gets tense. That whole there's there's a you know what. Go ahead. Yeah. Go 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 on. Well, no, let's no, stick with the right. crazies. No, no, no. Oh, no, no, all right. No, no, no. Well, well,
3: well, I already had this written in. I was like, we're going to end up arguing about. Okay. Good. Zack Snyder. I just think he, Zack Snyder blows his entire filmmaking load in the first ten minutes of the movie and has never had anything to say on film since. Like, I, I think, think
1: he blows. Yeah. I'm very close to you with you on this. I think it takes a little longer than ten minutes, but it's his best
3: movie. He'll sure. Fucking, yeah. But what's, but what's even in... What is even, even even in his oeuvre that can be called a movie other than this? It's The Watchmen?
1: Right. right. That's the I second don't know. best. I don't know. I mean, there there is something so uh, crazy and over the top about 300 that I can understand why people like it. And sometimes I watch it and I'm like, holy shit, this movie is fucked. But uh, yeah, there's not a lot of movie making with that guy, is there?
3: No. And I feel... Here, this is something that I feel is, is key to both George Romero, who maybe is my favorite director of all time, mm-hmm. and John Carpenter, who is maybe my favorite director of all time. Uh, that, those are two out of three or four of like the guys who I grew up with and like made me love movies. And then learning about how they did what they did made me think like, oh, okay, there's like there's a method to this, Matt. It's right, right. actually like... Like I sent you this
1: document of the dead thing. Had you mm-hmm. have
3: you ever watched that documentary? I've
1: heard about it for years and i have
3: never seen it, so thank you. It's so great and it teaches it was the it was maybe the first thing I ever saw that taught me about movie making. and there's this sequence at the very beginning and it's narrated by Susan Tyrell, which Ooh. is fantastic cuz like you could just listen to her talk all day long.
1: I just watched something with her the other day. Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker.
3: Right. I saw her not too long ago. I finally caught up to that uh um, Hard Ties C- or- it's called, no it's called fat city
1: okay I was, all right.
3: anyway, she's amazing and but one of the first things that happens in Document of the Dead is they walk you through a sequence in Martin and they point out how many setups Romero used in a in a scene, and where other directors where most other directors would maybe do like a master and then like a medium shot and maybe like a couple of close-ups and you know that like Romero's got like 50 shots in the place of where normally you'd have like five shots and nowhere is this more evident than in the crazies which i don't know if it has a single shot in the whole movie that lasts more than 10 seconds i mean it's crazy how fast paced and how fast how fast the editing is for the first hour of that movie but more than, more than the fact that he keeps cutting so fast is that every time he cuts it's to a different angle that you haven't seen before. And you watch the movies and one part of my brain is like, Jesus, how long did it take them to shoot each one of these scenes? Because he's constantly changing angles. Like, even if it's a close-up of somebody, you'll see the close-up, it cuts to something else and then it cuts back to that person and it's a different close-up. It's like a completely different angle on that person. You're like, God damn did they do a lot of work shooting this movie and made so much more work for himself in the editing room, but that's how he liked to make movies, and that's really his style. And sadly, the thing that went away in those late, late period Romero movies, like when he finally came back and started doing zombie movies again, was that Mm. style. And that's the thing that's the most, uh, the saddest part of watching those movies to me, is that like you don't get those signature Romero like 50 setups in place of one and that. I mean do
1: you think stuff. he was editing in his head and you know th- that was just like alright we're done with that shot rather than thinking yeah.
3: Yes I think and but I, I also think that, that that's how he learned to make movies is that you can you make your movies in the editing room so to give yourself as many possibilities as you can so that when you get into the editing room if you realize that a scene isn't working you've got 20 other ways to cut that scene to make it work And uh, I just think that's an amazing process and a brilliant way to work. It just seems like way more work than I would ever want to do. Like it seems overwhelming to conceptualize and then to be stuck like as a filmmaker, not that I'm much of a filmmaker, but I'm totally the opposite. I'm like, what can I do that will that'll save me time in post production? Like right. if I if I could shoot the whole thing in one shot, that would be great. Because I'm done by the time I'm done shooting a scene, I'm like I don't want to look at it anymore. I don't yeah. want to think about it. I don't want to fix it. It is what it is. But he was totally the opposite, and I thought I think he does that to amazing effect through all all of his early films, um, Night of the Living Dead, uh, blah 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 blah, <laughs> The Crazies, Martin, Dawn of the Dead. If you watch those movies. You should, you should watch all those movies with just that in mind. Like, try to count the different camera angles there are in every scene. And... Right. You will get... You will freak yourself out.
1: Like, so in the 80s, he settles down and he gets more conventional.
3: I don't even know if it was the 80s, but I think by the time... I think that when I really noticed it, what... You know, not that the films he made in the 80s were all that great, but I think even in, like, Monkey Shines and in Day of the Dead, there's still a lot of that stuff. They're still very heavily edited and heavily shot films. But... By the time we get to Land of the Dead. I think right, Land of right. the Dead was the one where I was like, this doesn't look like a Romero movie. This doesn't feel like a Romero movie. It's not a terrible movie, it's just not
1: it's it's like a, there's something defanged about it. Yep. I I went and saw it last year. They were playing Defanged with, and
3: declawed, I think yeah, is they the were phrase. F-
1: playing it with Day of the Dead and, and Night of the Living Dead and and it just I remember seeing it and I was so excited. And then I found out it was rated R, and I was a little less excited. And then you know, just wait—had you never seen it before? No, 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 no. When it first came out, oh, okay. uh, I was, I was just pulling for, pulling for it. I mean, I've got a long history of, like, just pulling for the movie and not completely, just not completely being Mm -hmm. won over by it.
3: No, that—that's how I was. Yeah. And and honestly, I did. You know, in a way, once once that lowered the bar for me, I think I sort of enjoyed *Diary of the Dead* more than I should have, and I kind of even enjoyed *Survival of the Dead* more than I should have. Because uh-huh. by then it was like, well, this this guy doesn't doesn't make m- his movies anymore. But this, there's a couple of interesting things in *Diary of the Dead*. There's right. like, I remember one shot of these zombies walking along the bottom of a of a swimming pool, and I thought that's a that's a great image.
1: I mean, the re- retirement of Carpenter and Romero, kind of like a forced retirement. It kind of bugs me, but on top of that, it's like, all right, you you had these great ideas, and Hollywood wants to keep recycling them over and over with remakes. And on one hand, I feel kind of, for him, offended by the entire idea. But on the other hand, it's like, you, you know, you might as well reap some benefits from the thing and sit back and relax I mean, as far as remakes go though, the remakes of Romero movies are a lot better than the remakes of Carpenter movies. Oh yeah. So So Yes. Um, I
3: I'm not saying, listen, I don't think Dawn of the Dead the Zack Snyder movie is a bad movie. I just think it's like a pointless movie. Like I think he doesn't wind other than that first 10 minutes, which I think if nothing I celebrate it most because I feel like that paved the way for Shaun of the Dead, which I think is a really terrific Movie full of great ideas and imagination. Right,
1: that's the perfect Dawn of the Dead remake, Sean.
3: Right, Dead. right, and I know, and I think that I I'm not sure that it would have happened the way it happened if there hadn't have been Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead because I think those first ten minutes are very very influential for Shaun of the Dead. The way that the the way that there's all this chaos that's going on in the background right. of scenes right. that you that the characters aren't seeing but is happening all around them.
1: Totally, yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's it, that all like the zombie renaissance I feel like it started with 28 Days Later mm-hmm. and so when I went to see Dawn of the Dead I was like this is going to suck and I like 28 Days Later a lot as well.
3: Um, I like I like 28 Weeks Later even more. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, they're both want. good.
1: Yeah. But the Dawn of the Dead remake is was was really good. I was kind of like wow, that was terrific. And I, and I didn't see it coming, you know. I was just like, all right, I'll go see this because I I have to. I'm contractually obligated to go see it. But I wasn't excited to see it.
3: Well, I will I think I think what happened with me and the Dawn of the Dead remake and I think I'm remembering this correctly. They Either on TV and/or in the movie theaters, literally showed you the whole pre-credit sequence as a as a trailer. Right. Yeah. And so I'd already seen the best part of the movie. So by the time I saw the movie, right. I was all psyched. I was like, "Wait, this looks like it could be really fucking good." And then it was like, oh. uh, "For me, by the time they get in the mall, which is only ten minutes into the movie, it's like there's right. no. It's like yeah, after okay. that, I'm like, I, mean, I don't care."
1: We can have this argument all day, but I, that's <laughs> yeah. funny that that you that you I forgot all about that that was that that was the trailer. And, and the opening gets something to something that I love about the opening of this is it opens right away, the, the crazies now from 1973, yeah. is you don't even know the movie started. You're not sure. You're like, right. w- wait, what? what's going on?
3: And you almost feel like you've walked into the third reel or something. Like they, right. they, they loaded it on the projector wrong.
1: <laughs> right, and it's so cool. And there's a little bit of that in uh Snyder's Dawn of the Dead, but not enough. I think there's still... Something that happens to let you know the movie's starting, but there's nothing that happens at the beginning of Crazies, and it's so disorienting and and uh, jarring. And I totally love that. I mean, that opening scene is great. I mean, it's really disturbing and it's pretty remarkable.
3: Yeah, it it really is, and you know, especially if you're somebody at the time, which I don't know who I don't know who there was. I don't know if anyone back in seventy three was paying attention to Romero and waiting for like mm-hmm. his follow up to Night of the Living Dead. But but right. let's assume that there are some people who made their way to a movie theater knowing full well who the filmmaker behind the crazies was exactly and what he had yeah. brought to the table. And then you you get there and it's like, Whoa, okay, this yeah. And you you know it feels like wait. Right, the way I, am, the
1: basement. Yeah. The kid coming up the basement, you're like it's a, a deliberate throwback to what he did, or callback, I guess, to Night of the Living Dead.
3: It's um, there's a there's just there's that brilliant there's just such a brilliant shot. It's from the from the sister's perspective. She has made it down mm-hmm. to the bottom of the stairs in the basement, and uh, she looks up the stairs at her brother, who's like yelling at her. You know, he's teasing her or something. And we can see and she can see this shadowy fucking thing
1: yeah. behind the
3: kid and it's the it's the father. It's so confusing because it's hard to even understand if it's the father or not. You don't you have no idea who's doing what. And it's so fast. That sequence is so short. And again, composed of so many small little detail shots. The kid unscrewing the light bulb. Right. All this stuff. You don't know who's doing what to who but somehow it all works like as chaotic that's the thing about the crazies and that's the thing about George Romero to me that Zack Snyder never gets and 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 not just Zack Snyder but many many mm. other genre filmmakers is this way of being chaotic and yet you still get a sense of the space and then the spatial relationship between these characters um that you you, you understand the menace and you understand what's at stake, even if you're not really clear about, you know, what the story is and why things are happening. You're still like, OK, these kids are in danger because, you know, this guy is way bigger than them. We can get that sense. He's got an object. There's something happening there. There's all kinds of weird shit going on. Uh You know, you always get this, and it's the same thing with Carpenter. This is what I was trying to say earlier, is that those Uh, two guys, the thing about these remakes with other directors that they don't seem to understand is how to present a sense of place and a sense of space and a sense of distance between different things. Like, that's what's so brilliant about Halloween, is you, you know exactly where you are at all times, and you get this very clear sense of... How far of a distance it is from one house to the other and that where those houses are in relationship to each other so that when Jamie Lee Curtis is making her way back across the street uh, to the house that's locked, like you understand the path that she's taking. You understand where Michael is uh, compared to her. And then they you know, then he uses your your understanding of how close they are to each other to fuck with you and to like prolong the suspense. And to keep cutting back and you think, oh, she doesn't have any more time left. Right. But then you cut back and you see, oh, no, he's still only halfway across the street. Yeah. There's yeah. all that great stuff. And it happens on like micro and macro levels all over the place. And the same thing happens with Romero's movies. And to me, that's the problem with the Dawn of the Dead remake and even the Crazies remake to some extent is that there isn't that same. Oh, but most importantly it drives me crazy about that Halloween remake that they did a couple years ago uh with uh what you that David Gordon oh. Green made. Which is like you never you never know where these characters are in relationship to each other. So you don't there's no suspense because you're like, I don't even know whose house we're in, why we're in that house, how far they are from these other people, why they're on this side of town, where does Jamie Lee Curtis live compared to everyone else? Like there's no there's no inner geography to the movie, and so you lose all these opportunities for tension. It's a piece of shit that movie.
1: I don't. know. Yeah, it's terrible. It's. it's I, I don't even want to talk about it. It's. <laughs> it's so. I mean, you knew. You knew you were in trouble within the first five minutes of that movie when mm-hmm. he pulls out the mask and was like, "I should probably just leave right now. Just
3: get <laughs> up and go." Yeah. Yeah. Well, even that stupid thing where they're where they have him out on this. Chessboard or something yeah 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 like at the beginning it's oh like, right well, what's That's going on here yeah 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 You, yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. uh, romero especially romero like you want know, talk about a time and place like just you look at half of martin is about just the neighborhood that martin is living in and you know he proudly makes his movies and in Pittsburgh. He, he is interested. You're right. He is interested in, in the time and, and where you're at and putting you in a place. And, it, you know, it, it's like a lot of things that we're talking about on this. Like, people just aren't interested in that anymore. You know? I mean, who who gives a fuck? Like, if, if you've never been to yeah. Pennsylvania, why do you care if the movie's made in Pennsylvania? So, who right. cares? Right.
3: Well, that's true. But, you know, I came to a little mini revelation yesterday watching The Crazies. Uh, and I also watched The remake or the original? The original. Okay. And I, I watched The Crazies and was like, man, this movie is so relevant for today. Right. This whole virus thing. Yep. This whole not knowing who's got the virus, who doesn't have the virus.
1: The Um, government,
3: the government, and how inept the government is, and how they just bring chaos to uh, the situation rather than fixing anything, and all the bureaucracy and red tape makes everything bad, and you know ruins any chances humanity has of making their way through this crisis. Now the crazies I saw all the time on TV. I was thinking about. I probably have seen George Romero's movies more than anybody else's movies, and seen them all like a million times. And Crazies was on TV? The Crazies in New York was on like, you know, like local syndicated, like, you know, Channel 11, Channel 9, like WPIX, not, not on, but it was all the time. Right. It it would be on like Saturday mornings, Sunday mornings. They didn't care when they were showing that thing. And I'm, you know, it was heavily edited, but I, I remember I saw, I've seen the Crazies probably as much as I've seen Night of the Living Dead, as much as I've seen Dawn of the Dead, as much as I've seen Martin, uh, which is a ton of times. And But unlike those other films, the crazies I would see all the time on TV. And anyway, the revelation I had was like, you know, I'm always like you, like, oh, why don't they make movies like they made in the 70s? And why don't people pay attention to details in movies anymore like they used to? And then I was like, who cares? These movies are here for us now. Like I'm able to watch these movies right now and see their relevance to the times that I'm living in right now. You know, Little Murders is all about a society that's completely violence obsessed and people are just killing each other nonstop with guns. Mm-hmm. And it's like, whoa, uh, you know, and it's a comedy. But in the yeah. middle of this comedy, there's like t- like nonstop death and destruction.
1: Uh, right. It's it's amazing how little things have changed, you know. Yeah. And, and I don't know if we're supposed to feel hopeful for that or completely depressed by it, you know? I think we're supposed to be completely depressed. Yeah, Yeah. I guess. But when people go, things are so bad now. I'm like, no, (laughs) they've always been bad and we've come this far. Right. And then I think, yeah, but we haven't changed at all. So what's the fucking point?
3: Right. But but, But the other thing, the other part of my like, oh, is that I don't think that these films were appreciated for sort of how accurate they were or how yep. reflective they were of society and they certainly weren't appreciated for how prescient they turned out to be about where we are 40, 50 years later so I think like oh you know I don't care who cares what movies they're making today these movies are still readily available for people to see and I my, my boss says there's no such thing as like old new old movies or new movies there's movies you've seen and movies you haven't seen yet right. and that's all there is that's the, only, that's the only two types of movies there are yeah and so it never go. ends you know
1: right. it no, nothing makes me angrier than when somebody's like oh I've seen I've seen everything I've seen it all you know there's nothing, nothing new. It. yeah it's like fuck you you haven't seen anything right and, and the people that say stuff like that you know they haven't seen anything because nobody who has even scratched the surface Right. Says and, it,
3: like and it also made me think that maybe in 40 or 50 years from now, people will look at today's slate of movies and be like, wow, these guys didn't know what they had back in the 2020s. Like, these That's possible. These movies fantastic. And yeah. Look at what they're saying about society even back then. Right. <laughs> I, it's, mean, I don't know. I don't really I, believe I, that. I, I doubt yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I, uh,
1: yeah. yeah, fuck that.
3: Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe at some point Zack Snyder's Justice League will... will Make itself obvious as like a masterpiece for the
1: ages. Yeah, well, I mean, it's already having its 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 day in the sun, isn't it? Does it really need another bloated day in the sun? No, not in my house, sir. Not in my fucking house.
3: Yeah. So the Crazies. Yes. Uh, from 1973, written and directed by George A. Romero, who we've been like rhapsodizing about already. He started off in 1968 with a little number called "Night of the Living Dead." Do you do you remember the first time you saw that?
1: Yeah, uh, that was definitely on TV, and and that was, I mean, they showed that all the time. So I mean, I, sh- I watched that in the middle of the day, like it was on at 3 p.m. And did
3: did they cut little parts out of it? Did they have to like cut out some of the like? No, eating? dude, it was on.
1: It was on TV uncut. I mean, it was glorious. And then they showed it again. At five, and then they showed it again and again and again and again. So it was like it's a wonderful life of horror movies, and I watched it all the time. And you know, and 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 it worked like in broad daylight. It worked. Plus, that opening scene is all broad daylight. So it totally, it 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 uh, it had its hooks in me right from the beginning.
4: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Uh, I can't remember. I mean, it must have been the same thing. I must have seen it on TV a bunch of times. Um, In college, I was going to school for filmmaking, and I made this, we had to make like, I think we had to make what was called a process film, which I think really what you're supposed to do is like, here's how you make a hamburger. And, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you 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 demonstrate the, the whole process of making... A hamburger. Right. Um, and, you know, you, you, it teaches you about editing and about um, camera angles and all that shit. What it takes to tell that little story, the story mm-hmm. of, of a process. But for some reason, I came up with this idea of uh, the process of watching a movie. And so I concocted this little scenario. Uh, and it was it was almost like a radio play because it was like you heard my voice and you heard a girl's voice. And, it, and you hear me saying like... Oh man, they're showing Dawn of the Dead tonight at some blah blah at some movie theater. We got to go see that. And then this girl saying, Oh, I've never how seen How old were th- you
1: when they did this?
3: I was, you know, seventeen. Okay. Eighteen. I was in college. I was like a freshman or sophomore, maybe. Um and then this this girl's like sort of playing the part of my girlfriend. You hear her saying, like, Oh, I've never seen Night of the Living Dead. And I say, What? You've never seen Night of the Living Dead? <laughs> and this is all going on while the screen is black. And I say, Okay, hang on a second. And you hear me like put a VHS cassette into a into a player and then all of a sudden the, the you know you start seeing an image on the screen and it's Night of the Living Dead on a TV set but I'm holding down the like speed search button on my remote so like it's Night of the Living Dead playing at like three times it's n- normal speed yeah and it's me narrating Night of the Living Dead and telling my girlfriend what's happening because I we only have like 20 minutes or something before we have to go see Dawn of the Dead In this in this little scenario that I've concocted for this experimental process film. So the so the whole I think it's like an eight minute film and the whole length of the film is you, the viewer watching like a sped up version of Night of the Living Dead with my voiceover narration, like saying, okay, now he's killing her and she's the mother and she's getting stabbed with a spade and the da 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 da. Right, right. And then I think at the end of it, she's like, "Oh, I'm too tired to go to a movie now, anyway." And that, you know that was like the punchline. <laughs> <laughs> that was the whole movie. Uh,
1: Me and my friend made this movie uh, video that was a, a a welcome to new students at at the high school that we were at, um, and I ended up using tons of footage from. Dawn, no, not Dawn, from Day of the Dead. Like basically illustrating uh, the students, like cutting back and forth from students walking around to showing shots of zombies walking around. And uh, after Is I this left high school... Is an officially
3: mandated thing? Like this was something...
1: You, yeah, you, so when you you first came to the high school as a way to like acclimate freshmen to you know what the school had to offer and you'd have to watch this. And so it would show students walking around, and then I'd cut that with zombies walking around at the beginning of Day of the Dead. And and they showed that. And so by the time I left, I heard that they had cut out all the Day of the Dead stuff because it was too gross, and they didn't want to show that anymore. But they let me get away with it for at least a year. So it's funny that, you know, you and I yeah. were doing that.
3: Yes. So... Uh, after Night of the Living Dead, which, of course, is everyone recognizes as an all-time classic. Um, then he made a movie, which I've never seen, called There's Always Vanilla. Have you ever caught yeah. up to this one? It's a comedy. He said it's not
1: very good. Yeah. He said it's not very good.
3: Yeah. No. But you've never seen it? Never seen it. Oh. Then he made Season of the Witch, which is a movie, again, that I would see on TV sometimes and was wow. always like, I don't get it. I don't understand wow. what I'm watching.
1: I, mean, I can't believe I, I, all these movies, you saw these movies on TV. There was no way for me to see any of these things other than on video. That blows my mind.
3: Yeah, uh, I I don't know. I think, it w- I don't know why there was. Because it seemed like you had some of those same independent channels that we had. Like maybe It was uh, a regional
1: thing. Maybe it was a East Coast type of thing. Where you maybe could get a hold of yeah. Everything that I watched, uh, other than Night of the Living Dead, was on video. It was on those hardcover cover. Thorn EMI, videos.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, But what do you think of
1: season of the witch?
3: Well, you know, I watched it again on my Criterion channel last week. uh, Yes. And for the first, maybe for the first time, since VHS, Uh because at some point I must have rented the VHS of season of the witch. And uh, of course, like like a lot of these things, including uh, the crazies. Uh, they show up on criterion like the print itself has like an alternate title and so it's yeah uh, it's hungry wives or I I had heard Jack's wife I, I know that that was what they were shooting it under the title of um but I'd never I don't think I'd remembered that there was a hungry wives uh, version of it and that's that is I think that's the title on the criterion okay channel print um but I thought it was all right I mean it's not it's definitely out of out of out of these first uh, four of his films that I've seen: *Night of the Living Dead*, *Season of the Witch*, *The Crazies*, and *Martin*. It's definitely like the least of them.
1: Well, there's but, another one. There's like an amusement
3: park one. Yeah, we were we were we were trying to get it shown at last year's Wisconsin Film Festival. Um, then our festival got canceled. Uh, but anyway, I think *Season of the Witch* is not a bad movie. It's it's fine, and *The Crazies* in some ways. I love as much as Night of the Living Dead and as much as Martin I mean I I would have to say like I would uh, up until this conversation if people ask me which is my favorite of those four it would most of the time I might say Martin Mm -hmm. uh, which really knocked me out when I first saw it yeah it's great and and continues to Um, but they're all great and it's it's amazing to me that, that run of movies, and then and then of course Dawn of the Dead. I mean that's an insane amount of what I think are like some of my favorite movies of all time, all being made by the same guy in this period of time. And then doing some research for this podcast, realizing that that's not the, the general consensus. Like I'm seeing all this shit about people who just think the crazies was garbage. Yeah, and uh, and I and I mean retrospectively, I mean like you know hipsters like writing shit. On the internet these days about like the crazies being garbage and um i showed it a couple years ago at cinematech and i do think that the crowd reaction was more like they were laughing and i think they thought they were laughing at it instead of with it Uh which um you know is weird because as much as anything it's a satire i mean it's it's deliberately funny i mean there's lots of like built-in laughs in this movie right I mean, in a way that there aren't in Night of the Living Dead and, and, and to a lesser extent, Martin. Martin might have some laughs, but not many. I mean, I think what this movie
1: lacks in subtlety, it makes up for in complexity. I mean, I, that's what I was completely blown away by when I watched it last year. It was because I hadn't seen it in a while. And I remember having to uh, seek it out and convince my friends to watch it because they weren't the biggest Romero fans. They thought his stuff was a little boring and and I get what they were saying. It wasn't good for midnight movie hangs and stuff like that. But
3: yeah, it's not like Dead Alive where you're like, "Okay, I'm no, just going to watch." Not, it, none of those movies Blood, are The Evil right. Dead,
1: you know. There'd right. always be a point with these movies when my friends would be like, "This is fucking boring," you know, or like something like with Martin. I was like, "Oh, we got to watch Martin." They'd sit there and like, all right, when's this movie going to start? And, you know, there'd be a scene where, remember the scene where where Martin puts on the cape? And then like, all right, here we go. Now this fucking movie's (laughs) finally starting, you know. (laughs) It was that kind of stuff. Uh, And so Crazies did not go over too well. And I saw it a few times, but just seeing it last year and seeing what it was doing and also seeing it in light of, you know, the burgeoning pandemic, I was fucking blown away by it. And I, I recommend it to everybody. They're like, what should I
3: watch right now? I'm like,
1: watch The Crazies, you know?
3: Yeah. Um, it's a very rich film. It's got, it gives you a ton of stuff to soak in visually. Mm-hmm. And so you, you know, you, you can watch the movie 10 times and see, see new things every time you watch it. And then on top of that, the soundscape, the audio is equally complicated. I mean, it's like an Altman movie. It's like Robert Altman directing um, Like a Howard Hawks Rapid Fire You know The dialogue At least for the first hour Is as fast as any screwball comedy Like people are just Boom 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 With the dialogue Plus half of it seems to be off mic The other half of it seems to be like Recorded post production Mm -hmm. And you know There's a couple of things about the crazies That I love But I love And like oh my god What a complete fucking disaster this is But I adore it anyway Uh and I have a list of those things, like the dude with the mustache in the extremely ill-fitting military uniform. One of the guys who's in the like command center who's making the peeling decision the orange? about what they're gonna do. Yes, the guy peeling the orange. Yeah, yeah. Like he <laughs> he seems like he's left over from an HG Lewis or an Ed Wood movie. Yeah, um, everything he's about that guy's wrong. He's, yeah,
1: he's he's put some money into this production. Is what's
3: yeah, going but on. not into his outfit, which is no. like what dude. This is four times too big on you. He's a backer. Uh, yeah. Uh the special effect of the priest uh lighting himself on fire is not it's not it's not the greatest. It's political. Oh yeah, it's, no, it's, it's I, I it's, appreciate it. it I appreciate it as a as an event in the film, but I can see, you know, as far as dummy deaths go, that's not the greatest dummy death of all time. No,
1: no, it's not. He should have just shot he should have just cut to the shot of the the Buddhist monk burning himself. Yeah. It would have been we get right, it, which he does sum
3: up. It. There is that. There's a couple of great times where he uses stock footage to show like the military operations kicking off, like the planes flying off the thing, and the, you know. There's a little bit of like Doctor Strangelove stuff that happens from time to time. Exactly. Yes.
1: Even with the drums, too. The, the, the
3: Yes. Yeah. Sh- right. Right. And the Johnny when Johnny comes marching home. Which, interestingly, makes an appearance in the Crazies remake, like, for no particular reason. One of the Crazies in the remake is whistling that same tune. Um, nice. I mean, uh, not for no reason, because they're paying right. the <laughs> thing. <Right. laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but then, um, and then the other thing that, that I think is like, well, there's no real excuse for how weird this is. But it kind of charms me anyway, is like... How all of this, there's all this wild track sound and, and some of the outdoor stuff, like people running around and like all the military guys talking to each other and chasing people in the fields. All that stuff sounds obviously like it was recorded indoors somewhere in like a gymnasium. It all sounds, mm-hmm. all this outdoor sound sounds very indoors. And so there's this weird like disconnect between what you're looking at and what you're hearing. you're like, I don't understand why this sounds this way. Um. But that's it. Everything else about this movie I love and I love like unironically and without having to make excuses for anything. Right. Uh you know, Romero's like as I've been saying, his style, his technique, it's just amazing for me to watch how many different shots he's got set up and and also how ambitious he is and how how well he does with these uh parallel like narratives. Like we're following uh, the David and Judy and Crank, is that his name? Crank? the Crank? crank clank. 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 Yeah. We're following their story. We're also following uh, the military story, like the, all the stuff that goes on in the doctor's office right. or doctor's house. Um, and then I think there's even a third thread. Well, there's those guys in the command center. But I mean, this is one of those, I, I you know, you see movies like this all the time. And usually when I watch a movie that's got these sort of parallel narratives. And you're going back and forth from one perspective to the other. There usually comes a time in the movie where I'm like, I think we're spending too much time on this story and we need to get back to that other story. But as many times as I watch The Crazies, I never have that moment where I'm like, oh, no, we're spending. I need to find out what these other people are doing right now. And which to me says that Romero has this great sense of like how much we need to To stick with each branch of this story. Oh, and then there's the the, the other the other thing, which becomes its own sort of track, is the uh, is that doctor, that scientist, uh, who I love, yeah. <laughs> who's in the high school with his new lab assistant, uh, yeah. trying to find the cure to the virus. Uh, and I just think Richard Romero France. Does, yeah, Richard France, and he does such a great job at like keeping us. Uh, balanced with all of those stories and showing how they play off of each other, I just think that that's sort of like an unheralded, like it's easy to sort of overlook how hard that is to do until you watch other movies that attempt the same thing and you get this vibe like, it doesn't feel as evenly balanced to me anyway.
1: Well, movies that had similar budgets to what uh, Romero was working with wouldn't even attempt that. No. And, And that's... That's the thing is like he's not streamlining the story so he can get more bang from his buck. He's like, I'm going to make this movie and, you know, the things that will suffer are just going to have to suffer so I can tell the story.
3: That's the thing. He he bites off so much more than he can chew with this movie. I mean, it's so much more ambitious than he should have been thinking of in any way, shape or form. And he pulls it off. I mean, I think he really fucking pulls it off. He makes the most out of every penny that he had to spend on that movie.
1: I'm not so sure if he feels like he pulls, if he felt like he was pulling it off personally, because I think there's a lot of ideas in this that he played with again in Dawn of the Dead when he had more money. And he was like, okay, this time I can actually do it. There's a lot of elements that are going on. And, you know, it has...
3: Absolutely, there's. I w- I wrote down this thing. One of my favorite scenes or sequences in this in the Crazies, is it's sort of a montage of the military busting into different people's houses yeah. and grabbing the kids off the couches and stuff. And I think it's fantastic. And it almost and there's there's certainly a bunch of it that takes place in one house, and that really feels like a precursor and like sort of a warm up for the scene at the beginning of Dawn of the Dead where they, where they invade the housing project. Right. Uh, and, you know, like the, the stuff with the old lady and the knitting needles and all that stuff feels exactly yeah. like this. It like, it almost feels like a shot for shot set up, like the, like the things that they do in Dawn of the Dead with the guy who gets bitten in the shoulder. Yeah.
1: And, yeah. 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 This movie so, is yeah. such a bridge between Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead that, yeah. you know, you could call it a, sort of a half sequel or spiritual sequel or, or whatever, but it's definitely he's, he's expanding on ideas that were in night of living dead, that he's going to bring to full fruition in dawn of the dead. Yeah. But, but apart from those things, this movie might be more complex than either of those movies. There are so many things going on. Like who's, who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? It's, it's more slippery here than, and he usually likes to be slippery about that, but here
3: it's more than ever. And, and it's
1: fucking amazing. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Even, even to the point, like you're saying with who is the good guy, like you, my brain wants and has always want, and it, honestly, it wasn't until watching it this week. And I've, like I've said, I've seen this movie, I don't know, 25 times probably. Uh, it really wasn't until watching it this week and really trying to like analyze it so I could write notes and be like, oh, wait, blah, 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 blah. Right. Like my brain tells me that the the colonel, the guy who gets flown in uh, from wherever he is, the black guy. Yeah. Uh, he in my brain is like a, a protagonist. Like He's a good guy. He's going to take us through this. And I think a lot of it is because he's black. And uh, and I'm thinking Romero's this progressive guy, and he's already done this in Night of the Living Dead, right, right. and you know this is our this is our cool dude who's gonna if he even if he can't save the day he's gonna go down trying. But the right. truth is he really isn't. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing particularly heroic or smart about any of the things he does. He's uh,
1: he's probably the most ineffectual of the three yeah. that you could argue are the protagonists.
3: Yes, right. And it was was funny to sort of come to terms with that and, like, realize, like, oh, this is just sort of my bias, like, being like, no, I'm going to root for the black guy who's made his way up the, you know, chain of command, you know, and he doesn't have a mustache. There's nothing about him which makes you feel like he's old school military. Like, you know, you look at him and you think, like, okay, this is the cool dude who's, like, somehow made his way up the ranks, but because he's so smart and, like, so capable and there's no other reason that he would possibly be there. And it's not like it's the opposite of that, but but you're right. No. He's completely ineffectual. I mean, but it's it's a
1: it's a Romero movie, and you've been trained to think right. that the black guy is the main guy because it's a Romero right. movie. So yeah. it's not your fault. It's a Romero bias that you have.
3: But 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 one of the things about biting off more than he could chew and somehow somehow getting away with it is there's so many characters in this movie and so many parts for actors and not a single real. Actor in the movie, but they're but with the exception of the the dude I complained about, with the, they're all pretty fucking good. They're all pretty memorable. They all have interesting faces and have and they're sort of committed to their performances. Right? There's nobody else. There's nobody in this film that I watch and I'm like, oh in, god, why did they cast that person? And why in the case
1: I mean? of Richard France, he's really fucking committed. Oh yeah, like that <laughs> yes. guy's. I mean, he looks like Francis Coppola, right? And and then it turns out like he's an Orson Welles. Uh, disciple. He's actually yeah. the author of a couple of books about Wells's stage stuff. And man, is that guy an Orson Welles disciple? I mean, just Wellsing it up nonstop. He's in another Romero movie, isn't he? He's at the beginning of uh, Dawn of the Dead. Going right, right, every, right. He's, every yeah. person that dies will get up. You, yeah. you have to burn them. You know, he, yeah. he's great in that movie. Yeah, he's got an eye patch in that movie. Right, right, but you right. You know, he was like, "What <laughs> if I wore an eye patch?" <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah. And I got to say, not to harp on the Zack Snyder thing at all, but I feel like his Richard Franz's death when he falls down those stairs Mm -hmm. is staged in a way that I really believe. I'm like, yeah, okay, I buy that this guy just fell down these stairs and cracked his head open at the bottom in a way that even in the best part of Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead when Sarah Polly jumps through that window of the bathroom with the big and thing, and sort of lands on her head outside, I'm I'm sort of like I don't know would she be able to get up so easily from that? Like I feel like even there, Romero knows knows more about camera angles and cutting and stunt work than than Snyder does with all his millions.
1: Yeah, you know it's I'm not going to argue. I mean, I'm not saying that the remake no, is better. No, no, I'm
3: I, just saying that it's it, it's fine. It's pretty it's good. Fine. Yeah. I also love uh I love all these central relationships and 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 their progression and their story throughout the thing. I love the story of David and Judy. And I really think that it really hit me this time maybe more than ever. Like what a what a well-crafted kind of tragedy their story is. And how moving it yeah. is to me in, in the end. I mean, her death yeah. scene, when she talks about feeling the baby kick, like, I don't, I'm like, whoa. I don't think I've ever heard anything like that, ever seen that kind of a death scene in a movie before where like a pregnant woman and, 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 and them saying anything like that. Like, that's, that's heavy. Yeah. You know, Romero's not afraid to go there.
1: And neither was Carpenter. You know, I mean, you know, you'd look at the beginning of the movie, and one of the things that I I love about Romero and and, and Carpenter is that they're not afraid to kill kids or put them in harm's way. You know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you know that was something that I was brought up to like that's a no no, and they're like no, it's a yes yes, and uh, and that, and that's another thing that just making that the unborn child, they're killing it right then and there because you go oh it stopped kicking, it's like oh, well that thing's dead. Yeah, and, and I, that whole ending is such a great riff on Invasion of the Body Snatchers. You know how he—he's like, "You just hide here," even though he already knows she's infected, even though she's an other, and he runs away for what reason? I'm not so sure. But uh, when he comes back, she's completely taken over, but she's not sinister. She's just helpless and sad, and it's—it's it's really great.
3: Yeah, what is he doing? He goes into like the warehouse and he goes up those stairs. What yeah. is he doing? I can't remember what he's even trying he's, to do.
1: He's trying to like protect her and sort of throw them off the scent, I guess. But he's, hmm. she seems like she's going to be a lot easier to find than he is.
3: Yeah, yeah. I feel like he te- he's leaving her there because he's going to go somewhere else entirely. But then he lingers in the area for some reason. And I don't exactly know why. Like, I think he says, I'm going to go do something. You wait here. And he seems like he's going to be gone for a while because he puts he does this, which I love this whole thing with the concrete cinder blocks that he builds a little cell for her. But but you're right. I don't know what he's doing up in that upstairs part of that warehouse or wherever they are.
1: I think maybe he just realizes she's going to hold him down or keep him. Back somehow. And in order to defeat the the military, he's going to have to work alone. Maybe. Maybe that's what's going on. I, I don't know. But I, I really love that scene where he takes the mask and and pretends to be somebody else. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh, she's going to shoot him thinking that, you know, the, you know, Romero loves irony more than about anybody I can think of. And she's going to think he's one of the military and shoot him and he's going to be dead.
3: Right. And I, and I also, I, th- I think it's, I think it's great and interesting. And I think it's cool that Romero was able to pull this off that even though he's been killing people, I think he's killed people up until this point. It's not his first killing, but the fact, but when that guy goes up the stairs and he ends up killing him with that knife, it's a definite, like I've taken, I've now crossed a line that I haven't no. crossed up until now. I've done this intimate killing of this guy who I maybe didn't need to kill. Um, and it's sort of like, you know, it's sort of like, almost like the death of his humanity at that point. Like he looks at that knife after he's killed that guy and it's like, you know, there's no turning back and it's, it's sort of like the bleakest moment in the, you know, between that and then her getting killed five seconds later, like that's like, it's a real, it's a real double whammy of, uh, (laughs) of like, wow, this isn't going to have a happy ending.
1: Yeah. His ambivalence, (laughs) even though he's a green beret is like a major plot point.
3: Right, and I also love, speaking of rela- central relationships and their progressions, is is the whole dynamic between him and Clank. Yeah. And, and you know, and the sort of, I do think there are subtleties about their relationship and about what kind of a guy Clank is and what the sort of rivalry and sort of love between the two of those guys are and, and how that affects their sense of, of whether... Of whether the other person can be trusted Whether one of them Is succumbing to the virus or not It's sort of hard to tell throughout Whether Clank is actually Does he have the virus or is he just a fucking You know uh, Idiot Yeah yeah, like a a a violent (laughs) Yeah I mean (laughs) I I, I
1: I love the power shift You know once uh, Once what's his face Realizes what Clank can do You know it's like Oh, suddenly he's not in charge anymore. He's not telling him to shut up and go upstairs, and we'll be with you later. It's like, all right, you know, this this other guy is dangerous, Um, and and he totally gets that thing of like when stupid people who aren't too bright, you know how dangerous they can actually be, and if they're sort of unleashed in a situation like that where they've got no problem using violence, and you realize, oh, I've got to be careful with this guy that I used to think I could boss around.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And it also, it also, I think for me for the first time reminded me of like, oh, this really is sort of like a, uh, this has a lot of elements of what Carpenter uses in the thing in that it, that it becomes this story of like not knowing who you can trust and, you know, and, and who, you know, being stuck in a situation with people who were your friends uh, or, or at least people you worked with and then not knowing whether they're still that person or not, or whether they are becoming the enemy. Um, uh, I think it's, I think it's cool that, that, that Romero did this that many years before Carpenter jumped on it with the thing. Yeah. Well, that was,
1: that's always been Romero's point. Like even from Night of the Living Dead, it's like the, the main, uh, the main danger is not the zombies. It's the people in the house with you. And everything breaks down always because of the people that you have to work with. They're, you know, you can't trust them. And, and that is probably uh, Romero's most prescient thing is that, you know, if he could see now that he's like, all right, there's, there's this, uh, I, I wish he were alive. To see COVID nineteen, I that's one of the great regrets I have about this whole year. It's like if Romero was here, the words that he could say about it, or maybe he could make a handwashing video or, or, or something like that. Uh, but the whole year is is like a Romero movie. It's like, all right, we have this threat, and we cannot get our shit together to deal with the threat, and you know, the threat to our lives and our economy. It's like we just can't can't do it. Cannot fucking do it
3: and and you're stupid to think that there's this greater force at work, this government that has its shit together and will take care of you in a time of crisis and yeah, like, you know
1: I mean that's what's it, cool about this movie is that you know the people that are infected, you would think that they're the zombies, they're the monsters, but you know when you look at the the the, the video cover of the, the cover for the the video at the video store it's always the government in the hazmat suits and it seems like they're the monsters. So for most of the movie the government is implicitly the monster here and explicitly. and that's the, that's the enduring image from the movie, right? you know it's it's not it's not one of the crazies. It, it's not somebody it's not some woman with a broom um, it's it's these people in their hazmat suit.
3: Yeah. So, what's your? Is this your? Is Romero your guy out of all these sort of horror? Like I, you know, I think I grew up with Romero and Cronenberg and Carpenter. And yeah, those I, those guys. I, yeah. Right. Yeah, and I just don't. I don't. I don't. I wouldn't want to pick a favorite. Um, but if I, I had to, I might. I might go with Romero. I don't know why. I just. Maybe I... There's
1: something about Carpenter, but uh, Romero has had like this effect on me. Like I decided I was going to be a Romero fan before I'd seen any of his movies. And I was obsessed with, with Dawn of the Dead and looking at it in the paper, in the ads, and it was playing mm-hmm. and it had that yeah. X on it, and it said no yeah. one under 18 admitted. And I was just yeah. kind of like, I have to see this thing. And so... At that age, when I was nine, and there was no way I was going to be able to see it, I'm having nightmares about this movie that I'd never seen. And I still yeah. have recurring zombie nightmares. And so this guy had his hooks in me ever before I'd ever seen anything. Um, so that that was like when, when video started happening and we'd have these parties where we'd go to the video store and get these horror films. I was always like, you know, the first time I got brought home Dawn of the Dead, people were like, yeah, yeah, this will be great. And then... It, so long, and they were so bored, and then I was like, Hey, how about crazies? I'm like, All right, that looks pretty good. And they're like, This is what? What did you do? You know, so when by the time I'm like, Hey, let's watch Season of the Witch, they're like, Fuck you, <laughs> we're not watching it. Yeah, like even I remember bringing back Night Riders, I was like, Doesn't this look great? We got about halfway through, everyone was like, I'm going to bed, man. I stayed up and watched the rest of it by myself, but I was always going to the mat for that guy. Um, and you know, he had all those, all those things that we love about him. The complexity of what he was doing and the characterization and his own style were things that did not endear him to my stoner friends and stuff like that.
3: Yeah, that's too bad. Oh, well, fuck him. I, I, I was looking through all his films today and I haven't seen them all. But out of the ones that I've seen, like I haven't seen... Two Evil Eyes. I haven't seen his segment of that. I can't remember. And oh, maybe that's the only one. I, and I haven't seen There's Always Vanilla. And I haven't seen The Amusement Park yet. But, you know, somebody... have seen Night Riders. I've seen Night... I saw Night Riders in the... Because by the time that came out in a theater, I was totally in... And I Full saw it in a theater. Fan, and yeah. I've seen yeah, it yeah. since. And, you know, it's all right. Um, I enjoy it. It's fun seeing Ed Harris back yeah. in the day. And yeah. I'll, Tom Savini in a major role and um, I think it's it's you know it's an interesting movie I was gonna say that out of all his movies um, I find there's something of interest and value in all of them except there's only one that I've seen and I've only seen it once and maybe I need to revisit it but I really don't want to and that's Bruiser
1: I forgot Bruiser existed until I was looking at his filmography today and I was like oh fuck bruiser i mean i can't even remember i i know i've seen it but i can't remember
3: what it's about i feel like it's like it, it's a, it this guy puts on this white mask and f- i don't know what the it's like a it feels very much like a giallo like it's like a Dario Argento movie but without any style or any interesting anything I you know th- it's sort of like yeah. you take all the style out of a of an italian giallo and then you have bruiser i keep thinking that it's got something I to do with like fashion the- shoots. there's they're, they're like there's like fashion photography going on and then it's almost like a phantom of the opera kind of thing. Huh. I don't fucking know. I just remember thinking like what am I watching? How did George Romero have anything to do with this? Every time I think
1: the- I know what it is, I think no, that's got to be the dark half. So I I cannot remember a single element of that movie.
3: Bruiser feels and I think is very European. But you know, people talk these days about all these other kind of regional filmmakers, especially mm-hmm. like genre filmmakers like H.G. Uh, Lewis and this dude that I was stuck talking about, Bill Rabane. This guy, Al Adamson, you know any of his stuff? I'm not sure. And this guy, William Greffe, who was down in Florida shooting weird shit like Whiskey Mountain. Uh uh-huh. <laughs> and I feel like there's this tendency now to group Romero in with those guys but to me Romero is so much better and I don't begrudge any like you know film fans looking through the archives and finding all these other undiscovered regional genre filmmakers you know I think that's fine I think it's I think it's great celebrate all of them you know there are these guys who they've each made like you know 10 15 movies right uh, themselves and you know that's great, but I think in some weird way I sense that that Romero then gets devalued because they cuz he's somebody who's already been discovered and was had more fame uh and fortune during his lifetime and so he's sort of dismissed in a way. They're like, "Yeah, yeah, Romero, but wait till you see these William Greffe movies, these Al Adamson movies." And that I think is bullshit. I think that you you know Yeah, I
1: mean, I think Romero is is not in that thing. I think he's, you know, like you were talking about, he's in a rarefied era that includes Carpenter and Cronenberg and Wes Craven. You know, you're talking about people Well, Wes
3: Craven and Tope, so I, I wrote this down, and I wrote, like, Romero is much more in the company of Cronenberg and Carpenter, and above, in my mind, Hooper and Craven, who I like a lot, too, but if I had to, like, do these tiers, I'd be like, those guys are a good step below
1: yeah it's it's hard to it's hard for me to to go with you on on hooper Hooper, i think is so fucking good and so fucking important
3: texas chainsaw massacre unbeatable but um and life force you know i think is a terrible movie but yeah but on its own terms is fine like seeing it Seeing it more recently, knowing now what it's like when I when it came out, I was not I wasn't paying any attention to those Quatermass mass movies or any of those British horror sci fi movies, which is what it's really doing. Right. Yeah, yeah, I didn't get that, and now I see it. I'm like, oh yeah, he's doing a riff on these on these dopey British things, which I don't <laughs> love to begin with. And you know, and I I got all kinds of problems with Life Force, but I but I can appreciate what he's doing there. Oh. Funhouse, I don't understand. Why, I can't imagine. That's his bruiser to me. Like somebody, wait, Toby Hooper did this? What the fuck am I watching?
1: Well, if you know, if there's a bruiser, why does a funhouse uh, disqualify Toby Hooper? It does. not he- But and here's another one: Texas Chainsaw Massacre Two is
3: that's fantastic, pretty fucking brilliant too. No, yeah. it is. But I would say the 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 reason that it's it's the amount. It's maybe it's the quantity. Like Hooper doesn't have enough movies to be in that same league with. Romero, Romero doesn't
1: really either. You know what really shocked me when I was looking at the filmography today is I was from seventy three to seventy eight. There's nothing. And like I had always assumed in that Martin was seventy five or something. It, I, Martin I thought, is more
3: like I. I think Martin is seventy. Martin is definitely before seventy eight. That's not the 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 year that they have listed in Wikipedia. I'm sure is wrong. Martin is more like seven Okay, but. Night of the Living Dead, The Crazies, Dawn of the Dead, Martin, uh, Day of the Dead. Romero's got at least five movies that I would put above every Hooper movie except for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Maybe Poltergeist.
1: Eat Live is pretty great. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying it's better than Martin. You know, and I also like Creepshow. And, and I've, I've got a, a huge uh, spot in my heart for uh, Tales from the Dark Side. I, I, I love Tales from the Dark Side not the movie the tv show
3: yeah yeah it's good yeah i like it too uh but wes craven maybe he's on his own level below well all right let's let's
1: break it down what okay we've got nightmare on elm street
3: uh i love nightmare on elm street i don't like any of the sequels not that he directed well he directed some of them but the hills have eyes was an early favorite of mine I always have a soft spot for that okay. Just for uh, the scene where he gets the baby to cry on command somehow <laughs> uh,
1: What's the other one? Last House on the Left? I Last mean, House
3: on the Left I always have a fondness for it. Yeah it's, it, it's, it's so fucking nasty Last House on the Left is the one before You know Until Funny Games came along Was the one that I'm like I can't watch this again
1: I spit on your grave Always scares the shit out of me too Yeah
3: That's also really nasty Yeah yeah uh, it, it, I I like Shocker
1: a lot. You uh, do? Big fan like kind of oh, Shocker. Yeah, yeah. I love uh, uh, Deadly Friend.
3: No, you don't.
1: The basketball to the head of <laughs> of, of throw Mama from the train. It's oh, yeah. brilliant, man. I I mean, I wore out that videotape. Oh me that. my god!
3: Wow, I saw that uh, in theaters. I saw that in a theater. Deadly Friend. It yeah, was really bummed yeah. out. <laughs> yeah,
1: but, um. you, you well, really uh I, but i do without like the scream. rewind i like
3: scream okay, yes i,
1: I was know. gonna get to that i think scream is really really fucking good and i remember people like rob zombie who was like look that scream type of shit you know i'm gonna make this kind of movie and i'm like your movies suck scream is actually really good and it's got some really scary moments in the movie you know yeah Never mind what it begat, and and how how many of these shitty movies we had to see because of the success of it. On on itself, in itself, on its own, standing alone, Scream is terrific. Yep, there I said it.
3: Hot um, take. I am right there with you. It might
1: not be about quantity, but but as as far as like people who were there who like actually did something and changed the game. Uh, you know those five guys would those guys, five guys would be four and five for me, of course. But I, I still think that they deserve to be in the same uh, air. You know, they're on the bottom of the air,
3: but I think that's totally reasonable. And and maybe you've convinced me of the same thing. You fucking convince me.
1: Uh, speaking of Cronenberg, uh, what's her name is in this movie? Lynn Lowry.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, she has what is probably the most disturbing scene in the movie with her father, yeah, played by, uh, what's his name, Richard Liberty. He's the doctor from Day of the Dead. Yes. Which which I didn't, when I watched it last year, totally didn't get. And I didn't get until he starts uh, having sex with his daughter, realizing, oh, that's Dr. Frankenstein. I remember I did a thing last year for... uh, the talk house, and they were asking me what i was what what, what art I was using to comfort myself during the uh, during the the quarantine and I said this movie, and you know trying to explain why I love this movie so much, and then I started to get into and then you know the they start having sex with their daughters and and I was kind of like, ah, that's not something that he's gonna understand why that is so cool, you know. To say that out loud is to somebody who's not initiated into the the cult is uh, you can't say that.
3: No, you got yourself in trouble there. I didn't get
1: in trouble. I think uh, when, when it came down to uh, uh, writing da- him writing down what I actually said, he, he smoothed it out for me. He, he, he looked out for me. I think just so I wouldn't get in huge trouble for defending. Uh, Inter-family rape.
3: Yeah. Well, that's good. That's reasonable. Yeah.
1: Thank you, Talkhouse.
3: <laughs> I
1: love the oversaturated colors of of Romero's seventies movies, and I also mm-hmm. love the way th- the blood is clearly paint, and uh, and I love the way it looks. And uh, yeah. I know Savini had a problem with that, but but his movies look more oversaturated than other. Shoestring Productions, um, and it looks terrific. You can always tell. You can always tell. You know, there's something seedy about it, but the colors um, really make it.
3: I I remember having arguments in 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 college with film professors whose names will I won't mention because they're still around and um, mm-hmm. they have their own reputations, but about <laughs> the idea of whether Romero had a visual style or not and for me it was always about this 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 amazing amount of setups and the and the rapid editing um um but i think you know I, I think i don't i don't think having like a one a visual style is 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 all that important i think you can still be like a master filmmaker and an auteur without having a, a completely distinctive i mean there are plenty of filmmakers do have that and are great filmmakers you know martin scorsese is somebody i think you're familiar with um you know and steven spielberg and blah 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 Uh, maybe maybe romero isn't as distinctive you don't always know it's a romero movie based on just any shot in the movie maybe but on the other hand i think there are these other people who get all the credit in the world for having some kind of visual style that to me are just like garbage filmmakers. Like mm-hmm. I don't, I don't have any use for it. I right. don't want to mention any names, but if I have to, uh, Tim Burton comes to mind. Like Tony Sky. Hey, well, sure, yes, but I mean, but, but I think Tim Burton like really gets pegged as like an artiste, and I'm like, I don't see it. I mean, maybe. So I don't I don't know. I, Has anyone seen his version of Planet of the Apes? You want to talk to me about a visual yeah, style we and that piece of it, shit? Don't want
1: to talk about that? But but I, I I think that I I almost disagree with what you're saying. I know you're defending him, but like uh, like when I look at a frame from The Crazies, it looks like a frame from Dawn of the Dead, which looks like a frame from Martin. I think no, he and does I agree with you. I, I do a think style. that. that yeah.
3: Yes, I, I do think, and I do. I think you're right about the oversaturated colors, but I think that what's I think that the most important thing for any of these people is, is are they good storytellers and are they using visuals to tell that story as well as they can? And I think absolutely Romero does. Romero is using all the tools available to him to tell the story that he wants to tell. And, and I think that it's, you know, I think I was, when I was watching the crazies this week, I was like, he's so smart about the the clothes that he dresses these people in, because they stand out against the trees in the forest. So you always know where Lynn Larry is because she's wearing this very clear, and you always know where Judy is because she's wearing this red thing. And you know, every, you know, all there. He's got a lot of characters to deal with, and he's got a lot of really quick shots. So he needs ways that you, as an audience member, can identify who's in the shot and do we care about that person or not? And he does that all the time. And so I think that's that's all you need.
1: There's something about uh, the sexuality of Romero movies, too. Like, w- the shots of Judy at the beginning. Like, it's mm-hmm. very matter-of-fact, but there is yeah. something definitely erotic about it. And there is an erotic charge. And, yeah. and, you know, you see that in something like Martin and Season of the Witch. And they're just... You know, these are right. women, you know, they're not. Yeah, they're not like <laughs> models and stuff. And but they have this thing and
3: it's, 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 it's <laughs> well, I think it's because he I, I mean, I think it's because he's he's being told by producers, you need to have nudity because that's how mm-hmm. we're going to sell this thing. And he's like, OK, but he w- is really conscientious about making it feel like it's not for the money shot, that it's like just part of the story. And I think especially in The Crazies, that first scene where they're in bed and she gets out of bed, I think you're able to sort of say like, yeah, of course she's the naked one because they need this to sell the movie. But at the same time, you're like, no, this this feels very natural this feels like what this character would be doing when they got out of bed like she would walk across the room naked like that like there's nothing salacious about it and i think that that you're right i think that makes it sexy i think that the the fact that you're seeing you're not seeing somebody doing something deliberately to turn you on i think that's a much sexier thing than right you see tan lines you
1: know you, you see pubic hair through uh through, through panties know, so yeah, you, you yeah. see like this kind of stuff that's like <laughs> it's it's very like, like you're getting a peek of something like it it really feels like like oh I shouldn't be seeing this which makes it sexy um, mm-hmm. and I, I mean I would be I feel like I would be remiss not to bring that up
3: but I also do think that as soon as he didn't have to do that and as soon as he had more creative control and wasn't right. dealing with all these like you know fucking half-assed uh, investors who were, you know, dentists and, right. and things, I think then that stuff drops away. Like, I right. feel like, where's the nudity past his 70s output?
1: Well, it passed Martin. You know, you don't really see that kind of nudity in uh, Dawn of the Dead. You know, I don't think so, there's any nudity in
3: Dawn of the Dead. I don't think so. Day?
1: After Martin, he's done with it, you know. And, you know, women are the heroes of, of those movies at that point. And you can't get over Romero's being a fan of cruel irony. I mean, that, is there a movie that he's ever made where it's like, oh, the movie's over? You know, it's like, oh, if that thing had just not happened. And, and, I mean, this one's got two things, you know. First, you've got the doctor. He's got the cure. He falls down the stairs and dies. And then you've got the soldier who is immune. And then he meets with the guy... Uh, Who's in charge of the operation, who's looking for somebody who's immune and they just exchange a look and that's it. You know, it's a double whammy of irony in this movie.
3: I read a thing where Romero was saying the only the only weird time they had shooting this movie was the townspeople were a little bit like, what what the fuck is going on? Why are there naked black people running around this? this set and i'm like who's black and i was like oh and i realized it's the last shot it's the right. guy on the helicopter pad like taking off his clothes yeah and i guess when they <laughs> shot that there was some uproar about it
1: that was the problem that was yeah. the townspeople's problem yeah 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 well there's a little bit of that in the movie when he, they walk in and they see the black guy yeah. in charge they're like <laughs> yes. who'd have thought
3: yeah yeah and and the total podunk sheriff who's is you know Clearly, you know, in 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 some ways, this really does feel like this sort of spiritual sort of color remake slash sequel to Night of the Living Dead. I mean, and so the sheriff in this movie is clearly, you know, modeled after the guys who are on the news footage in Night of the Living Dead. And yeah. Having fun hunting down the zombies. But I appreciate that, like, just a third of the way in this movie, through the movie, this, this redneck sheriff accidentally shoots himself and dies. Uh, <laughs> I like that about it. Well,
1: well also the zombies are armed in this one too, which which yeah. which is pretty good.
3: Yes. I will say that the that the that the interesting change in the Crazies remake uh, is that we that the protagonists are actually part of the establishment that what's his face from um Deadwood uh, is the sh- Timothy Oliphant is the sheriff in the right. crazies. He's not just some random Vietnam vet. Cause that's another interesting thing about Romero's the crazies is like, what, do, are these guys even employed? What do they do? What does David do? Oh, they're, they're firemen. No, that's a volunteer fire department. They're just oh, getting okay. called out of bed, but what do they do during the day?
1: I don't know. I, I get the feeling that Clank doesn't do anything. <laughs> I think he's unemployed, but, uh, Maybe David's unemployed, too, which is a great statement in its own. You know, Maybe they're still living off their uh, pension. Yeah. Yeah. Is it a pension when you get out of the Army? Is that what it's called? What do you
3: call it? I that? don't know. <sighs> call yourself an American. No, I don't. Okay, good. <laughs> all right. You want to see? Uh, yeah, that's me. all
1: I got. Let's see what Vincent Camby has to say.
3: All right, well, I'll read you Vincent Canby, and then I'll show you what else was playing that day. Let's hear Uh, what Vincent Canby has to say. The citizens of Evans City are in a fix, but they don't know it. The army plane that recently crashed nearby was carrying some deadly bacteria that have poisoned the water supply. The symptoms of the illness, uncontrollable giggles followed by madness and probably death. Thus begins the crazies. An inept science fiction film from George A. Romero, the Pittsburgh man who has established himself as the Grandma Moses of ex-urban horror films with The Night of the Living Dead, a movie whose stark primitive style has made it into a classic of low camp. Okay. Nothing about those first two paragraphs is correct, Camp. But, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Like that earlier film, The Crazies was shot near Pittsburgh with a bunch of actors who perform with the kind of hysterical enthusiasm I haven't seen in 30 years, not since viewing a grade school production of, quote, six who pass while the lentils boil. (laughs) I don't know. Is that is what that Vincent Camden's joke? What a fucking reference. Oh, that, That's a grade A reference right there. I know. It's and, like, but he's not done. He says, "He says in which one young actor fell off the stage into the orchestra pit. I mean, that's a great... This whole review is worth it. Just I've for done that. that anecdote.
1: It, it happens. Kids lose their way. I've done that. Have you fallen into the orchestra pit? Not the orchestra pit, but I've fallen off stage during a play.
3: Let's not talk about. Wait, well, no, this is
1: I mean, this might be a lifer. I'm just conversation. saying that it happens. it happens. Yeah, it I, happens, and I think you know, Vincent Canby should just move on. Yeah, the film's. Real I was a subject, kid for Christ's sake.
3: <laughs> the film's real subject is not bacteriological weaponry or the idiocies of the military. But the collapse of a community presented as a spectacle prompted when the army moves to quarantine Evan City without explaining what's wrong. Now, here he's about to point out the one thing which I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. The soldiers who wear gas masks all the time, though the poison is in the water supply, shoot the citizens on sight. The citizens begin shooting soldiers on sight. Here and there, people go mad. A priest emulates himself, and the army commander shouts, you must get the president on the phone. We've got to get a nuclear weapon over that town. The scientist who developed the bacteria despairs, Jesus Christ, this is so random. <laughs> that's a great Yeah, I, I, I love, that. I love <laughs> yeah. that.
1: Well, hold on. Now, Now it, it starts in the water, but at a certain point, doesn't somebody say it could be airborne, so that's
3: why they're wearing the, the masks well, they might, but it's, again, the sound design is so Altman-esque that you can, you know, it, I, as many times as I've seen this movie, there's probably half the dialogue that I still haven't sussed out. <laughs> well, anyway, G, uh, Vincent Camby's almost done. He said, Jesus Christ, this is so random. Toward the end, his beautiful lab assistant quietly asks, just how would you rate our chances, doctor? And that's it. That's the end of the review. That's the end of the review? That's it. Well, at least let's...
1: P- at least it lets the listeners, our listeners, kind of know what the movie's about. So maybe we yes. should put that review at the beginning of the podcast. And okay. Then, uh, then then we can be here.
3: Sure. All right. <laughs> I like that idea. I like it a lot. Oh, here's what we haven't talked about, and I the, need to talk about it because okay. I want to end the episode with it. The, um, I think this is the only Romero movie that's got its own uh, end credits theme song love song love theme oh yeah i love this song it's the it turns out it's the first song you you hate it it's just what it's like the it's like the carpenters it's like it's, a, it's like a it's like a, the best carpenters song that the carpenters never wrote or recorded it's so out of place carol yes sure of course who cares carol bayer sager and melissa manchester wrote it and it's no. the first it's the first Melissa Manchester written song that was ever recorded. Wow. And it was recorded by this woman. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Beverly Breamers. Do you know Beverly Breamers? Yeah. American singer and actress, after roles on Broadway, Breamers recorded the 1972 Top 20 hit single, Don't Say You Don't Remember. Do you know that song?
1: I don't remember, but I know I'm not supposed to say that.
3: You're not? Oh, right. Don't Say You Don't Remember. <laughs> Oh, Scott, you're so fast Um I don't feel the, fast uh, But here's the exciting thing about it Is that breamers uh, Her surname is pronounced Breamers, Rhymes with Dreamers Even though it's B-R-E-M-E-R-S Don't fall born, in love with him She was born in Chicago Ooh. Look at that Wow, now within, I love it but, but within three years Had relocated to with her family to St. Louis mm, Now I don't
1: I I never noticed that the instrumental version uh, plays underneath that one scene until a few hours ago when I watched it again.
3: This film debuted in New York City Friday, March 23rd, 1973. Where? Uh, Well, we'll find out. I don't know. (laughs) Um, uh, Also playing that day, so we're looking at an ad for Billy Jack. And and then it actually has this this question. Why is Billy Jack one of the most popular pictures of our time? And it says Billy Jack didn't win an Academy Award, but people all over America have paid more than $30 million to see Billy Jack. It has played longer in hundreds of cities and towns in America than probably any picture. Probably any picture in recent years. I love they say probably. I don't know. This is like they're telling you what the facts are, and then it turns out there's no actual facts. Trump facts. More than, except Sound of Music. In July of 72, uh, reported, uh, they, uh, Box Office reported that Billy Jack had been seen by more people than any of the 1971 Best Picture nominees. And Billy Jack has returned to the Santa Rosa and Village Theaters being reported that this film has been seen by more people than Fiddler on the Roof, The Last Picture Show, Clockwork Orange, or The French Connection. Well, it doesn't Fuck really answer that question, does you. it? you.
1: Are you not a Billy uh, Jack
3: fan? Also,
1: well, I am, but better. Come on, why? Why you got to shit on a Clockwork Orange? Last picture show on the French Connection. Plus, it's a it's a Warner Brothers, uh, communications company. It's like they're they're shooting themselves in the foot. They distributed Clockwork Orange, and they probably distributed. I don't know. Did they distribute French Connection? I just don't like this shit. I don't like this man of the people crap. Right. You know, and I like you, Billy Jack, but you, you, the middle sections of your movies are turgid at best.
3: I this reminds me though another movie I up to, in, Interminable. Nice. Um, I knew I had a friend a friend in Brooklyn who uh, used to say this word all the time. and I never knew what he was saying, and finally figured out what he was saying. He wouldn't say uh, mediocre; he would say media core because that song is so fucking media core and i'd be like what are you talking about um uh but uh he, um i i i i watched uh, a man called horse based on your recommendation oh yeah i don't know man i'm a big fan of that movie
1: oh it's been a while but i'm a big fan yeah I had a band called revisit. a band called horse yeah no i won't yeah, revisit uh, but And, and then, uh, th- th- to make this ad even worse, at the bottom, it has positive reviews from critics. Now, they're not the fucking people. You know, if you're going to go all in that your movie is the best movie because of the reaction of the people, why do you bother putting in fucking Rex Reed? Fuck
3: this ad. See, now I don't need coffee. Although, I am fascinated by the Jack Kroll of Newsweek quote. Jack Kroll of Newsweek said about Billy Jack... Billy Jack's exciting action sequences are classic seductions of instinctive human sympathy for the extremes of right conduct, which is the great popular use of melodrama. Ooh. That sounds wow. like
1: something that the people are thinking.
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: You were going to say something about a, a Man Called Horace, right?
3: Uh, I, I didn't love it, but... It reminded me of something else, which is that one of the other 70s horror movies I checked out on Criterion, which I'd never seen, was Marlon Brando in The Nightcomers, which yeah. is a, pre- a prequel to the movie The Innocents, which is uh, yeah. really an adaptation of Henry James' Turning of the Screw. Turning of the Screw. Which all is to say that in that movie, The Nightcomers, which is still on Criterion for the next couple of days... Marlon Brando gives a performance that can only be described as Richard Harris. This is Marlon Brando as Richard Harris. He's got a, he an Irish Jack accent. This is Newsweek. Yes. Uh, so if you're looking to see some more Richard Harris, but you've run out of Richard Harris movies, check out Marlon Brando in The Nightcomers. So Cabaret was playing The Devil and Miss Jones, which I've never seen. Have you ever seen that? Oh, I've seen no, it. I, I no, I, I, I have seen. I've seen bits of that. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's that kind of. So medium. you're gonna see if, if, if
1: I saw time. it, and then you're gonna go, "Oh, I've seen it," just so I couldn't, you know, like talk about it with you.
3: Uh, Fiddler Such a on gorgeous the roof? kid like me. Oh, there's Fiddler on the Roof. There it is. Uh, here was a double feature: Massage Parlor seventy three and Sugar Cookies. Hmm. X. There was a, a double feature called Trick Baby and Joe Kid. Joe Kid. Is a movie I've heard of, but I don't know anything about
1: it. See that—that that always used to piss me off. That used to piss me off when they'd have, uh, well, not piss me off. But it made me wonder. Like, they'd have double features. Trick Babies rated R. Joe Kid is rated PG. So if I went to the PG,
3: would I be able to stick around for the R? I think the answer in New York City was was fuck yes, but I don't know how they work things here in the Midwest. Yeah. Here's another friend. Oh, a Such Francois a gor- Truffaut film Such a gorgeous kid like me I'm not familiar with this Francois Truffaut film I'm not either Seems like something
1: I would want to see Looks like a Maurice Pilot movie more than a Truffaut movie
3: Now there's an ad for a movie called I Am a Dancer Starring Rudolf Nureyev But honestly, doesn't Rudolf Nureyev in this thing Look exactly like Sylvester Stallone in either
1: In Paradise uh, is, Alley
3: Paradise Alley, thank you, Paradise Alley
1: yeah, I mean, yeah, it really that's does. wild. I think it is. Yeah.
3: yeah, they got the wrong picture with that. I'm ad.
1: calling bullshit. Ooh, sleuth We're is we move on
3: to the next page. Ingmar Bergman's "Cries and Whispers," presented by Roger Corman, was playing at the Cinema One.
1: You a fan of "Cries and Whispers"?
3: Uh, eh, yeah, it's all right. I can take your leave, yeah, Ingmar Bergman. With I'm
1: not a Bergman guy. I keep trying. It's just not gonna. I gotta see. Scenes from a marriage, and then uh, Mm -hmm. I'll make the call. Yeah, that should be on Criterion next month. I think it's it's already there, I think.
3: Oh, okay. Now, Lost Horizon sounds like a 1970s musical, which means you don't like it, even if you haven't seen it. Now,
1: is this a remake of... Is there a,
3: a, a Capra movie called Lost Horizon? I don't know if it's a Capra movie. Uh, but speaking of Capra movies, another movie I watched recently, I think on Criterion Channel, was The Lady Eve. Yes. Oh, but it was just Preston Sturges. <laughs> speaking yes. of Frank Capra, right. I saw this Preston Sturges movie. <laughs> right. I don't know why I get those guys confused sometimes.
1: We we did um, we did that not too long ago. Like I was talking about a Frank Capra. I was talking about Frank <laughs> Capra, and you go, "Well, that's not a Frank Capra movie." Oh, Harvey. You thought that I was saying Harvey was a Frank Capra movie? Yeah. Yes.
3: But were yeah, you? You, you but was it? It's not, is it? It's not.
1: No. No. I Who was did just talking about
3: Harvey. I don't know.
1: We were talking about oh God being Harvey esque. And then I was also saying in the same breath that it was Capra esque. And those two things were equated. Uh, but I mean, you know, you you could see how Capra might have done Harvey or the Lady Eve. Or lost horizon. Not Harvey this version. Direct-
3: no, Harvey was directed by Henry Costner. Not ringing a bell. Uh, there's a 1937 Lost Horizon film, and that was directed by Frank Capra. You son the
2: yeah!
3: bitch. <laughs> I'm just going to let you enjoy this moment of triumph. I'm, I'm back, you- baby. I'm back. Bring on the coffee. You know, we had like 10 people listening to this episode going, yes, of course, it's Frank Copper, you asshole. Shut up. Let him talk. <laughs> there's people well, who want, there's, there's something for who, them. I get, there's, there's, there's a guy I know who, who, um, in direct messages me on Instagram and is always telling me to like mix it. Like we should be mixing it up more about some of these things that we almost argue about, but don't.
1: Right. <laughs> Yeah, but then it
3: just sometimes it feels
1: mean. Like, like I felt like I was attacking you at the beginning of this for uh, liking that that shitty crazies remake. And oh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, I, I just want you to know that I don't think your taste sucks for liking that movie. It's not. That's not where I was going with that. No, that's so hard. I felt mean, and so I decided to pull back from it.
3: Yeah. No, I really think that it's better if this is a safe space for both of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know what, I think this
1: episode to. should be shuffled <laughs> Like you should like sort of do a cut and paste thing with this episode Like a William Burroughs thing Okay So like, uh, you know, this should be the, the pulp fiction of episodes
3: Right um, There's also this kind of running gag Where every every episode we talk about me cutting stuff out And making it shorter And you saying move this stuff there You never then, do And then it <laughs> never happens <laughs> <laughs> It's always like I no, like, add stuff Like you're going to cut this out, right? Yeah, <laughs> sure
1: yeah, 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 yeah,
3: sure. Don't worry about uh, it. Although we have, I have been doing more of that. It's actually wonderful to be able to send you episodes of Lifers and then get your, your notes because you always have great ideas about stuff to cut. and. Oh, thank you. Although you were right that people are excited to see that one section of the um, Josh Cater episode on video. That's gotten a lot of... Yeah,
1: noise. I just thought it was too much of that voice that I was doing. I could feel... Yeah, in
3: the context of the episode it is, but on its yeah. own it's a delight. Yeah. Meow meow, Daniel. Yeah. So slither, which I think we've talked about somehow, I we didn't. Have. I don't know this fucking movie. I thought slither was one of those snake movie, like like you know, with with Struther Martin. But it's not. It's, a it's comedy. not comedy. It's a comedy with James Caan and Louise Lasser and Sally Kellerman and Peter well, Boyle. It's a the conglomeration
1: fuck. of humor, crime drama, and zaniness. Oh, crime, not crime drama. Humor, crime, drama, and zaniness. I don't know it, but Louise Lasser is in it. Who's directing this?
3: Jack? Howard Zeff. Howard Zeff. Who I think... um, Huh. That's not the guy who directed... (laughs) I'm thinking of the guy who directed um, uh, some of those um, John Hughes movies after John Hughes didn't want to direct him anymore.
1: Howard Deutsch.
3: Ah, thank you. Different guy. So Howard uh, Zeff
1: ended up marrying Leah Thompson. After he made Howard the Duck.
3: Now why why can't why Howard Zeef's Wikipedia doesn't even list his goddamn movies? What the fuck? Howard Zeef directed The Main Event with Barbara Streisand and O'Neill. I know that that one. He directed My Girl and My Girl too. Really?
1: So he was still working after the main event.
3: Yeah. Making and making my girl a movie I've never seen, but have always known that it ends with one of them getting killed by bee stings. Like how's that for a coming of age comedy?
1: Yeah, yeah. Macaulay Culkin dies from a bee sting. It's it's heartbreaking. That's people. people That's the worst ending
3: since Cooley High. For God's sakes, (laughs) it's not the
1: ending. I mean, she she learns. It's it's very much like Man in the Moon, like where Reese Mm -hmm. Witherspoon. Uh, what's his name? Jason London gets run over by a, a lawnmower, mm-hmm. and he dies. You know, it's, it's, it's like that kind of thing. Yeah. It's not the end. There's time for them to grow from the experience of seeing someone horribly murdered in front of them.
3: Wait, I'm about to blow your mind. Howard Zeef also directed Private Benjamin. Oh, Aldi Hahn.
1: So that was how it happened. He bounced back from the main event. Main event with Private Benjamin. With a huge hit, Goldie Hawn stripes. Yep. Uh,
3: yeah, yeah. S- so, so okay. So he, so it, Slither was his first film. Then in 1975, he directed Hearts of the West. Hmm. And then he did House Calls, which I think is, um, yeah, Walter Matthau and Glenda Jackson, Art Carney and Richard Benjamin, in like a hospital comedy. They did a lot of movies together, didn't they? Walter Matthau yep. and Glenda Jackson. Yeah, they were a thing. They uh, did that Hopscotch movie, too, right. where he's like a secret agent. Um, And then after that, he did the main event. And then after that, he did Private Benjamin. And then he took a four-year hiatus and came back with, I think it's a Dudley Moore movie. Yeah, Unfaithfully Yours, which is a Ooh. remake of a Preston Sturgis movie. Speaking of Preston Sturgis. Yeah, not uh, not, 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 a not, good one, not
1: well regarded. It's, no. it's actually not bad. It's just not Preston Sturges.
3: Right. Now, then he took another four or five year hiatus and came back with the dream team you know that one yeah, i do know Michael that keaton one. christopher lloyd peter right. boyle
1: right not to be confused with the couch trip
3: no no and then my girl and my girl too and that was it for him he might have died after that ah yeah he died in 2009 so actually how's that for an ending i know so his last movie was 1994 and then he died in 2009 at age eighty-one, so I'm not sure what happened to him after my girl too. He'd had enough, I guess so. It's it's possible. It happens. I feel like it that sometimes, like today. Yeah, um, you're feeling like you want to live out
1: your twilight years after this. Kinda, yeah. I kind of
3: do. Okay. I mean. Okay, we're know, coming any, up any on guy, the ad for the crazy. Check I out see this. It. There it is. Now, this was the day it opened. They can only afford like a little eighth of a page. Now I will point out that it's interesting that at this point in his career. And this this is I read an article on some stupid page today where they were bad mouthing the crazies and talking a lot about George Romero's lost years in the wilderness between Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead.
1: Oh, was that bloody disgusting? Yes. Fucking mm-hmm. moronic article. I, I couldn't I couldn't continue. I don't know who wrote that piece of
3: shit. Right. Thank you. But fuck him. I'm so glad. Oh, I couldn't Jesus. agree more. I was like, I was like what yeah. is this? <laughs> I don't know. It was and,
1: not just for his opinion, but his writing. Oh, it was just it was like, terrible. Fuck off. He kept fuck doing
3: these. I, he kept doing what he thought were like clever references to right. dialogue from other films. Like fuck you, right?
1: Ass. And his references. I was like, oh, oh my god, clever. Much <laughs> ever.
3: Yeah. Yep. I'm so glad you saw that. Yeah. I didn't want to be alone in my sadness. that sucks.
1: So he's basically saying Crazies blows.
3: And he also was saying that Romero was like three strikes and he was out. Like it was amazing he even got to do Dawn of the Dead because everyone hated there's always Vanilla and Jack's wife and the Crazies and even Martin. But then, he then of course, in the same paragraph, he's like, but people like Martin. I'm like, dude, you just said the two opposite things from each other. You right. fucking asshole. But,
1: but, but I mean, I can see like how... He he was probably losing money left and right for people, and you know they're not going to keep betting on this horse. So he probably was
3: down and out. I don't even know. Listen, the, the budgets for these things were nothing. This the crazies was like what uh, two hundred thousand dollars maybe two seventy five. I'm sure he made. I'm sure they made their money back on the driving circuit. I don't. Even, but you know all these other regional filmmakers. They spent their whole careers making movies for that amount of money and never, and nobody even knew their names until right. last year. Yeah. A- anyway, but I will say to this guy's point Romero's involvement in The Crazies is not being exploited in this ad. Like, he, this movie didn't oh, come yeah. out with, like, it doesn't say from the director of Night of the Living Dead, which you think they might want to do. Right. I guess that's never.
1: a mistake, it seems
3: to me.
4: Yeah.
3: How long is The Crazies? <laughs> Why, are you looking at our at our countdown clock here?
4: No,
1: I think this is helpful that we've gone over because I think you oh, can good, get yeah. something really good out of this because there were some maybe okay. dead moments that now you can okay. get to the lively stuff. Anyway, your wife was saying what?
3: Well, somehow in the 50 or so times I've seen the crazies, she claims to have never seen it. Even when I showed it publicly on campus last year, apparently she didn't come see it or two years <sighs> ago. That's just so... So she was watching it with me for the first time last night And I got the feeling she was sleeping through most of it But at the end of it She turned to me And she said I want a and divorce it's, I'm going to give you her quote in its entirety She said That was a long one." <laughs> 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 oh, brother
1: well, Wait until she sees a Zack Snyder cut of it